Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Fitbit Pod. My name is Ben Lomas, and with me always, Dil Rookjaya, singer. Hello, buddy. Hello, Benjamin. How exciting is this? Look at us, Dil, right? Last week we had a doctor, and this week we have another doctor. We are actually, from like three years of podcasting <laughs> as absolute dickheads, it's amazing that we're finally getting some people who know. Dr. Dickheads. Dr. Dickheads. <laughs> yeah. So our guest today is both a clinical neuropsychologist and a registered psychologist, and bringing both those expertise together to explain common life dilemmas minus the bullshit, which I love. And I think that's why her Instagram handle is no bull psych. Uh, she's done a ton of media work, including multiple appearances on the project. She's developed her own app called Assert Yourself and is also the author of a book, which I really want to talk about called How to Break Up with Friends. Please welcome to Fitbit, Dr. Hannah Coral. Yay. Hey, how are you guys oh. doing? Happy New Year, if I can still say that. Yeah, can I think you can. I think you can. You can say it Feb. Until Feb. Oh, great. Right. Feb. Uh, ben, you had some quick insight about the pronunciation of Coral. because Yes, it's, it's, it's Hannah. Well, well, if you were going to, it's a very Dutch surname. So if I was to say it and I was uh, living in Rotterdam and I was to make Hannah on the street and she was nice enough to talk to me I'd say hello Hannah Goggle you know what I've actually never ever heard the pronunciation of my surname because I am Dutch but I'm like very loose roots so, so thank you for shedding light on that Ben because I didn't even know that um, very loose roots reminds me of my single face but also you, you, has anyone told you <laughs> <laughs> um, has anyone told you you do look Dutch you do look Dutch. Do I? Yes, you do. You definitely look Dutch. What's like the it. what's the key yeah. features of a, a Dutch person? Stunning. There we go. Wrap it up, people. We've done yeah. it. We've done it again. Don't take it too far. He's told he's told Bro. me I look uh, look Indian. So let's just be honest. He's just he's just racially stereotyping. Um, I don't look Dutch, and I'm I was born there. Like I'm disappointed. I don't look Dutch unless I put on my Dutch accent. But uh, thank you. Best podcast ever, Doctor <laughs> Doctor Goggle. Um, oh, no. I want to stick so, with the Aussie so and go with Coral. All right, Dr. Coral. Dr. Uh, Hannah, this is incredible. Thank you so much for doing this. First, I think, well, let's kick off at the top in terms of neuropsychologist and clinical psychologist, like uh, the, the registered psychologist versus clinical neuropsychologist. What's the difference there? Yeah, so um, a neuropsychologist is like not your traditional psychologist. So most people would think of psych like going All to the sessions. What's that? that? Is Oliver Sacks a neuropsychologist? He's a neurologist. But I do love Oliver Sacks. He's the reason (laughs) I got into neuropsychology. I love love Oliver Sacks. Um, So you're knowing something about that topic. Has been. <laughs> I, I, I do. I love Oliver Sacks. The Man Who Mistook His Wife was one of my favorite books that's, of all time. That's why I got into neuropsychology. Is that really the same? Oh, yes. For, oh, for, people, for people who don't know, it's yeah, like he was, he was. Do you want to explain who Oliver Sacks was just to give it context? Oh, he's a legend in the field of like all the unusual types of um, neurological conditions that make the body do weird and wonderful things, like not being able to see movement anymore, not being able to use your arms properly anymore, not being yep. able to label what objects are anymore. So Oliver Sacks wrote a number of very, very good books. One of them's Migraines. I'm reading that one at the moment, but he made a great book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which has a lot of cool stories so cool. about crazy neurological conditions that cause people to behave in a really unusual fashion. Um, and he's one of the reasons why I actually got into neuropsychology. Wow. Is that because sort of he, the area, sorry, Ben, is it where they like where they talk about someone who had like some brain damage and all of a sudden started speaking fluent German, even though they'd never uh, spoken? You know, those stories that you hear about the brain well, suddenly all of, or like they said they couldn't draw before and now suddenly the left side of the brain is damaged. So now the right side is dominant or something. Is that the area that we're talking about? 
Uh, kind of, so to speak. Uh, Foreign accent syndrome is uh, like, we'll put a question mark. Yeah, okay. question, yeah. <laughs> that might just might, might have just been a Wikipedia entry that someone was mucking around with. <laughs> this will show my uh, age, Dr. Kohl, um, is that um, is is when I read it, I was in year 10, and it blew me away because the chapter, the, the, the man who mistook his wife is based on a man who at the end of the session with the, with the neurosurgeon picks up his wife and tries to put her on his head because he thinks his wife is the hat. And then, and, but that was the part of the chapter. The one that always sticks with me, which I never knew, was phantom limbs. So people who lose like their leg in a car accident, which my dad, because my dad's a physio, and he said it's, it's very common where you lose, say you lose the, your right leg from the knee, that one day you will generally wake up and go, you know what? My right toe is killing me. My right big <laughs> toe really hurts and it doesn't exist. But yeah. in your head, you feel that. And then I remember I actually thought about a career uh, in, in, in that field. Uh, but then I realized I wasn't smart enough. So, but at the time I started then reading all these other books. And so then I sort of got, I went down sort of that rabbit hole where what's the, what's the movie awakenings with uh, Robin Williams. Is that based on his book? I, I thought think. you were going to say the matrix because nothing exists. <laughs> it's all in your head. You're all imagining everything. It's all in your head, mate. Like it really is. That great documentary. Time. Your brain doesn't know linear time. Your brain doesn't oh, know what's going sorry. on. It doesn't know the difference between emotional and physical pain like oh you're speaking my language i just saw i just went i went back to back with the matrixes i saw like the the original one in imax and the next screening i went to was the fourth one but we, we're going to we're going to have so many tangents it's, it's, total, total it's tangents. crazy like but, the matrix <laughs> like, um the so yeah you so your 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 studies were of the two differences between uh neuropsychologists and psychologists yeah sorry i was telling okay yeah sorry let's go back to the question oh that's um, going to happen a lot by the way it's man, gonna, honestly. It's gonna it's so going to be look. filled with that and there's going to no, be friends we're it. not going to tie up. It's creativity, ten- loose tangential conversation. I love it. Um, so psychology is more like the longer term. Let's have a discussion and use certain therapies. Like people, most people have heard of CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. There's many different types of therapy, which effectively um, are based on figuring out what is going on with your beliefs about the world. Mm-hmm. Usually they come from how you were raised and how some of those beliefs might be really healthy, but some might be really unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And then they essentially work to unpack those really well ingrained beliefs um, over a course of several sessions like uh-huh. up to in Australia you get up to 20 sessions with Medicare per year so I'll you be might- active by 10 I remember I thought that uh, extra 10 was just uh, for the pandemic I didn't realize it's so yeah. supposed to get 20 yeah so it's six and then you can go up to 10 and then you get mm. special permission you can get another 20 uh, you go up to 20 in a year which is great can I um, interrupt you with a question there that I've always wanted to ask someone who might know you know the when you do your you know, the uh, mental health plan. And there's this questionnaire, the questionnaire about where you're at and where you're feeling. Um, Even when I'm operating at like prime optimum level, I still downplay my scores just so that I'm scared that my doctor might say, you're you're fine. You don't need the Medicare for this. I'm always like, you know, how often do you feel sad? And if I've been thriving for a month, I'm like, yeah, pretty average. Like, is that, does that affect, uh, do do my answers actually affect whether the doctor is going to give me uh, the health plan or not? And are you allowed to say, are we putting you in trouble here? 
No, you know, I mean, I think my advice would always be be honest when you're answering those questionnaires. Like you can, you, what your doctor wants to see is that there's some kind of improvement from oh, you true. going to therapy. Okay. So yeah. you're not, you're not going to turn around and, and you can say to your doctor, Hey, I'm worried if I'm really honest on this survey and my scores are better, you're not going to give me my mental health care plan. Now there's right. no reason for the doctor not to give you a mental health care plan just because you scored well on yeah, right. the depression, anxiety, stress scale. Right. Um, but that justifies why you should keep getting your mental health care plan because the first time you did it maybe it sucked and yeah. then the second time six months later it got better which evidences that this is working and you should do okay. more of it All so right. i would say don't don't feel like your doctor's a real person right like he's gosh. a bit of, he's also the same guy who when i stood on the scales when i went to him so i started therapy because of i was you know drinking too much i was obese and and i wanted to start you know from this as you said from the from 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 understanding you know actually what what's happening in my brain so in, for example what you said before really resonated with me because this is a podcast that started about weight loss and whenever i get asked by people how did you lose you know 30 kilos or whatever it was i always say i started seeing a therapist but no one wants to hear that as an answer because i always say you, i needed to understand why i overweight when why i didn't like exercise before i could actually apply that knowledge but when i went to this doctor and i stood on the scales his exact words were, uh, words were oh well looking at your stomach i thought it would have been way more <laughs> and i was like this guy is not good but he's just so close that i still keep going to him oh. <laughs> Wow. Well, just because he's close. Yeah. I'm, that's how lazy I am. That's how I became obese in the first place. Just finding Jesus. shortcuts. Oh my gosh. Well, I think you're tapping into a really great point, which is like, we, we always want to find the quick fix for things. And sometimes mm. it's not a quick fix. And the advice that I often give, and we'll talk a bit about how to get that elite advantage on your IQ and on your fitness. And if you've got any goals, there, there's a, there are some fundamental tenets that will help you to improve where you're at. And I, I call it like a 5%er, you know, do you want to be 5% better would you take it? Would you take 5% better? Then most people would say yes. Well, there's there's certain things that you can do that will help you to do that. But the problem is a lot of people expect, you know, they're going to have these massive quick fixes overnight and they want you to tell them the secret. What's the secret, Dill? What's the secret? Yeah. How did you do it? Did you take that, that magic, you know, silver bullet pill? Did you blend carrots for 12 weeks? What did you do? Yeah. Um, and, and the answer isn't a quick no, fix. No, exactly. What I see on stage, it's like, for when it's like someone asking me what was the recipe for that cake and i'm saying oh i cleaned the oven first and they're like no no but what's the actual recipe i'm like it doesn't matter what the recipe is if your oven's dirty mm -hmm. and it's just an annoying answer but it's the truth like you really need to kind of figure out what the fuck's happening in here before yeah. any diet or exercise or whatever matters so so yeah i'm glad to know that being honest is good because there's that high achiever in me that feels sad to give myself low marks when i really know i'm crushing it <laughs> so. um but it's so funny because i i was honest with my doctor i actually asked that question said oh well you know i really want I, I would like i would like to not play full price because it's quite expensive and i feel like that everyone has a right to see a counselor and i said what do we need to do to make sure that happens and he goes just answer them honestly but you know are you feeling a bit sad today <laughs> and i was like oh, okay okay cool let's, let's go with it but i'm yet to be turned down like from mm. a, a mental health care plan, which again shows the importance of why everyone, if you can afford it, uh, should have a chance to at least do it. Yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways. Oh, sorry about that, guys. 
there's lots of different ways that you can get a mental health care plan. And one of them is that the doctor wants some kind of evidence that you're having a tough time. And that might be they get you to do a quick K10 or a DAS or what are the, one of these quick questionnaires. Other ways are that they've sat with you and they've interviewed you, they've observed you, they've seen you, they've worked with you for a long time. And you're telling them, you know, today I feel okay, but I have, I have these issues that I want to tackle and I'm, I can't, I can't afford psychology traditionally without this support. Um, and if you are in a pickle and you are one of those, tell us, I think it'd be quite rare if your doctor said no to your mental health care plan. I don't think I've ever met anyone whose doctor said no. But, you know, there are other ways to do these things. There's Headspace, there's Lifeline, there's all sorts of other, you know, online platforms that you can get support from um, while you're, you know, waiting for your psychologist or while you're maybe having some sort of financial difficulties to see a psychologist. Mm. And also one of the things that I guess I, I didn't expect we'll get to this point, but something that I, I guess I was lucky that with my therapist, we just hit the ground running. We had a breakthrough on day one and she's the same one I've been seeing for the last six years, I think now. Um, whereas I also know that that is not the, the case with a lot of people that sometimes you might have to, you know, for just for whatever reason, personalities didn't necessarily gel. And maybe the first therapist you saw might not have been suitable for you. And and if or that was shit. Or there was shit, I suppose. But also, <laughs> you weren't in a place where you could, you know, hear that yet. Yeah, no, I still but, blame my first one. It was shit. <laughs> <laughs> but also, there's this other thing that I again never truly had uh, empathy for, which was for certain people, maybe what they want to share is so difficult and challenging that to have to start over again with a new person every single time puts them in back to that trauma or whatever. And so, you know, uh, I guess my point is like. The help is out there if you need it, but also don't feel bad if you find yourself finding it, that it's taking effort to actually seek that help out. Because sometimes what you're trying to share or you need help with might be difficult to tap into in the first place, right? Yeah. And I, I often will encourage people to like, don't don't be passive in the psychologist picking. Like you can say to your GP who you'd like to be referred to. You can do a bit of Googling. You can go on the APS. Australian Psychological Society website, which is mm. find a psychologist. And you can type in your, your postcode and you can find out who's close to you. You can um, look up their website and see a photo of them. Maybe you want a man, maybe you want a woman, maybe you feel like you'd resonate with someone who is older or younger. And you can suss them out, get a little sense of their vibe. Uh, and as you say, Dill, sometimes you don't click with someone and you can do a session with them, realize this isn't quite right for me and then find a different person. Mm. But what I would tend to urge people to consider when they're, and we'll probably talk about this in when we talk about breaking up with friends, but setting expectations is okay. You know, it's not rude or awkward for you to say at the start, hey, this is the kind of psychology I'm hoping to receive. This is the kind of um, techniques that resonate well with me. I would like to be pushed. I want to do homework. I want to be held accountable. I want something that I see a change. I want to measure and see some change, like objective change. So can you incorporate that into your therapy so that I can start to see how this is going or what we're accomplishing or maybe you want it a different way but you can be honest with your psychologist and say you know this is what I want to do this is how I'd like to achieve it can we work towards you know doing the therapy in a way that is going to work for you you're allowed to do that right okay that that's a great starting point just to sort of let people know that again you know it's like being able to sort of articulate and you know, you know your not your boundaries but just essentially what your needs are and then being able to try and cater to that um yeah. in terms you, of the, just sorry. A, sorry just one question do you see patients yourself dr coral do you have do you see people regularly do you have a like a, a like a clinic as as one would say 
So yeah, so I, I work up in a hospital two days a week. So I work yep. up on a psychiatric ward and I um, head up a, a neuropsych department at a major hospital in Sydney. Um, and I also uh, have a practice of my own, which I run in Cremorne, that's in North Sydney. And I see a lot of people with um, autism, ADHD, they want to get diagnosed to see what's going on with their social skills or their attention. Or you have a family member who you suspect might have, you know, some cognitive issues like poor memory, something going on with they're thinking um, who maybe need some help getting onto like some government funding like NDIS. So I tend to see a lot of people from all ages who usually have very similar issues with their thinking and their memory. And that essentially is what a neuropsychologist does. We're not about the, you know, the long-term therapy. You don't see a neuropsychologist for many, many, many sessions. You probably see us for maybe three or four sessions. And we do the interview. We do a whole bunch of testing. I figure out what's going on in your brain, which parts yeah. of your amazing brain are working really well and then which parts of your brain aren't working so well and why that might be the case and then we can give you some recommendations on you know hey dill this is why sometimes you find it really difficult to concentrate or hey ben this is why you're super duper fast but you might sometimes make mistakes when you go really fast so we really nut out the function of what your brain can actually do mm, so what yeah. is your brain doing we we're the guys who figure that out Right. A lot of a lot of what neuropsych tends to do for the general population, if you're not in that specialized category of having a cognitive disability, so yeah. it's not like a neurodiversity, there's no autism or ADHD or cognitive impairment. For the general population, we're sort of more in the vein of sorry guys. We're sort <laughs> of more we're more in the vein of um assisting with like understanding that connection between your brain and your psychology. And mm, so yeah. many people are against, I don't know, I don't know if you guys encounter this, especially I find with men sometimes that there's this, this sort of pushback on psychology because the idea is that, you know, mental health means that you're mental and mm. emotions are touchy and feely and for the weak. And so yeah. this idea of getting some psychological help makes people go, well, you know, that's not for me because I'm, that's indulgent or I'm not, that would indicate that in some way I was weak, but in actual fact, you know, it, it, it's not about being weak. It is, it is about, you know, the biological processes that occur that might make you a bit more predisposed to be stressed or anxious or sad. And there's a lot of neurological elements there. So the neuropsychology can often be the bridge that helps people to realize, you know, maybe I do need to work a bit on my psychology, but to get their foot in the door, they need to understand the biology and the neurology of what's going on in my brain. Why does this keep happening to me? Why do I keep returning to these same patterns of eating or toxic people or self-sabotaging or putting myself last all the friggin' time? Mm. And, and they need someone to explain to them, well, hey, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, and there's yeah. some pretty strong patterns in your brain. And maybe you've been exposed to some pretty bad influences in your brain. And the threshold that you have now for or a reaction and your fight and flight system turning on, it's the threshold has gotten so low over time that it doesn't take much to kick you off into fight and flight. And it's very emotional and it's very hard, but it's also very neurological. 
So, you know, I like using terms like neurodepression and neuroanxiety and neurostress because sort it of, helps people, you know, it just takes a little bit of that burden it takes, off. It always removes sort of that identity being linked to the, the feeling, you know, it's like, this is the feeling I have, but I'm not that feeling, you know, this is something that's happening in, new, new, you know, in neurology, not to me almost, you know, it's like my brain is doing this, I'm not doing it. And you're preaching to the converted though, because because Ben, and especially people listening to this podcast, like, you know, Ben's been seeing a psych for what, 10 plus years, um, you know, I'm actually an ambassador for Mental Health Australia. And one of the things, my roles is to try and get people to realize that there's nothing wrong with asking for help. And, and it's a common thing that I find, especially with my subcontinental background, where we never talked about mental health. Like even my parents, I had to kind of, you know, I, I, it was easier for me to tell them a story about me getting so drunk and shitting my pants, but to tell them that I actually see a therapist was like a big taboo thing for me, you know? And, and what I was, as I said to mom, mom, I remember her saying she felt like, she feels bad that I have to seek help because uh, that I didn't, that she didn't give me enough tools on her own. I'm an, and I said, like, think of it like, you know, if I went to the dentist, you never think, oh, I didn't teach him how to brush his teeth. You'll be like, no, because, yeah, you need some extra help with your teeth because we can't get it all on our own. I mean, that's exactly what for me a therapist does is it does the professional job that I can't do as a layman, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's definitely the thing that that I really love that we're now starting to see things, including like the way you break it down on your, um, on your Instagram page, Anna, that like to simplifying complex things so that it makes it more digestible. And that way, I think for lack of a better word, people feel less alone with what they're dealing with. Yeah. And I think it's, that that's so true. And it's so great that, you know, you've got this platform to say that because I, I think a lot of people often exactly as you say, think that, I'm weak or mm. I, I'm not good enough or I'm pathetic or there's this stigma around getting the assistance that you need. And the best, best lesson that I could ever, ever impart to anyone is, is that these emotions aren't there because they hate you. You know, I, I do an exercise with people and go like, what does the emotion look like inside of you? You know, and some people might say, oh, it's like a big angry dog with its teeth blaring and red eyes and it's barking at me constantly. And it's, and I'm trying to ignore it and I can't sometimes. And it gets to the point where it's, I've got this dog barking in my face and it's just constant and I hate it. And I want it to disappear. If there was a button I could push, I would delete those emotions in a heartbeat. And I kind of have to say, hey, you know what? You know, these feelings in your body, these feelings of sadness or depression or anxiety, they actually really love you. They're there because they really, really love you. And you know this, not for a second, of a minute, of a day, of a week, maybe for years and years and years, have they given up on you? They've always been there, haven't they? They've never, ever given up on you. And they're there because they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to tell you that something's not okay, that something in your life is making you really unhappy and it's stressing you out or making you sad or making you anxious. And they're desperately, desperately trying to give you a signal that Mm. that dog in your mind is actually a little black Labrador that's come through the doggy door of your mind and he's come in and he's put his little head on your knee and he's looking up at you with his big brown eyes and he's looking up and going, mommy, daddy, you know, I really, I really don't feel okay. You know, I'm not okay. And I need help. I love you and I want you to be okay. And sometimes he's had to, yeah, bark really loudly at you because you just won't friggin' listen to him. And it's like you say, Dill, you know, when you went to see a psychologist and you finally dealt with what was going on for you, until you are ready to acknowledge 
what it is that makes that little puppy dog put his head on your knee to tell you something's wrong, he's going to stay there with you. And he's, he's not there because he hates you. He's not there because he wants to make your life hard. He's actually there because he really, really loves you. Now, this is, that's an amazing, a great example. And I wish I could have used those words because I tried that approach with my daughter because uh, we talk about emotions and she's a very emotional person and so am I. But it's that same thing of just uh, normalizing it and just making sure that what you're feeling is, is, is okay. And I think that's the one thing that the pandemic's taught parents in particular is we've been all going through this and it's been really challenging, but so have our children, except they don't have the tools yet to be able to sometimes um, you know, negotiate those feelings. And I think the example of the Black Labrador is actually quite sweet because then it does give it a face or an identity that they can relate to otherwise than just wanting the emotion to go away. I just want to say really quickly, Ben, like something you said about, I feel like I didn't speak to my daughter correctly about emotions. Can I just, can I just really quickly say to any parent listening and to you, yeah. the fact that you were talking to her about her emotions was right. You yeah. already nailed it. You already nailed it. Maybe you didn't have the exact words. Maybe no. you didn't have the exact analogy. That doesn't matter. What matters is when you're a kid, you have, you've got two parts of your brain, right? You've got the left hemisphere, which is your language side. That's language lateralized. That's what we call it. So if you get hit on the head on the left side, you might lose your language and not be able to speak or understand. The right side is nonverbal. So like putting together Ikea chairs, emotions, this is the wrestling, <laughs> the nonverbal side of our brain. And there's actually a part in the middle that connects the two. There's actually a part in the middle that connects the two. Now, as you get older, that part that connects the two has to grow and develop. And the best, best thing that a parent can do for their child is talk through their emotions. That is integrating the two hemispheres together. You don't have to get the answer right. You don't have to say the right thing. You don't have to be perfect in the way you talk about it. But the fact that you talked about it and you let her express, express her emotional side with words is helping her to develop that interconnection where we get a really healthy adult who knows how to talk through their emotions and doesn't swing like a pendulum between each hemisphere because they can only exist on one side. We And we end up with adults who are robot man who can never talk about anything, swinging to absolutely falling apart and all the emotions come boiling out like a volcano. We want to be somewhere healthily in the middle where we can talk through what's going on for us. So just like a side note, good on you, Ben. You didn't do a bad but, job. Fantastic. But- but, but isn't the, I totally agree and thank you, but isn't the problem with a lot of parents though is when they start talking to their kids about their emotions that they, because they don't know what they're doing, they, they're too scared that the pendulum will go the other way, that you are left with a kid who's, whose emotions just come out all, like, do you know what I mean? I think there's a lot of parents that's who are, okay. I, I know, I know that's, I think, but I, I feel like, and I, yeah, maybe I'm speaking on behalf of my friends who also listen to this podcast, where <laughs> is there a point where there, there is too much talking? Where is there a point where you have to go, you know, you need to work it out yourself? Hmm. Well, Ben and Ben's friends who are listening, uh, I would say it's, it's, you know, this is the thing that scares parents, especially I think maybe dads sometimes as well is yes. like big emotions. I'm so afraid that if I open this can of worms, I will never get this, this, this genie back into its bottle and these emotions will overflow, explode. And this kid is going to be uncontrollable for the rest of their lives. But you've probably already seen your kid lose their shit over not getting their favorite lollipop or something. And then 
a while later, maybe several minutes later, be happy as Larry again. Like kids' emotions go up and down like roller coasters all the time. And that's going to happen whether you give them emotional support or not. So take the pressure off yourself to feel like you need to control their emotional responses. They'll feel what they feel. It'll go for as long as it needs to go for. And if it gets to a point where you feel like now this is getting beyond normal or this is getting beyond where I feel like I'm out of my depth, well, that's where we go, okay, why don't you get some help with this? And you can talk to a psychologist yourself and you can book them in to see a psychologist too. But starting from a place where your child at least feels like they can talk to you about these emotions is your best, your best, best, best strategy to make sure they have good mental health because you know then you're monitoring it. And yeah, I hundred percent agree, and I think that's we as as a combined because you know, like like any you know people, if you're lucky enough that you know you're in a relationship where you both want to parent the same way, and I feel like we've both addressed that, and I've been definitely encouraged with my partner, especially with my boy, to really focus on that emotional connection. But what I have noticed uh, speaking to other parents is quite often when you control your child's emotion, it, you're controlling it because you don't want that child's emotion to then stress out your partner or then have another effect on the sibling. And I feel like the one thing that's come out of COVID is that quite often a lot of controlling of other people's emotions within your family is because you're trying to help the other person in the family to, you know, take the stress and burden off them. So then you kind of have this fiery pit where we're all trying to control each other's emotions. And, you know, it's so funny because that's the one thing you can't control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's like the thermostat that you're trying to, like, fix a thermostat in a different room that you're not in. And I, you know what? Sometimes the answer is this just fucking sucks right now, right? This mm, is a really right. tough time. You're stuck in the same house together. Everybody's walking on eggshells. Everybody's stepping on each other's toes. I often see parents in the clinic who are frantically trying to help control or or de-escalate one child's emotions it might be at the expense of a sibling who then doesn't get the same level of attention Mm. we end up with this boiling pot of parents stressing out because they are trying to be the mum, the dad the counselor the psychologist medic the partner the lover the podcaster they're trying to be everything to everyone and and i Mm. guess what i would say is if you're at the point where you are smashing your head into a wall because you're like this is just getting bigger than ben-hur Ben, and I can't handle it. <laughs> then I would say, hey, that's a really great sign that now's the time to talk to a psychologist about how things are going at home and get some support so you don't have to wear all the hats yourself. Because I 100% because because at the moment now you just feel it. You just feel it. There's a heat wave in Melbourne at the moment, and there are parents who are just hanging for Monday. Like it is the sphere is just phenomenal. Where it's just like and standing on cars, parents are hosing them down. Hosing them down. It's just like it's like no. come Monday, schools are back. And even if they turn around and said, guess what? We're closing schools. Too bad. Parents are going to drop their kids off anyway because yeah. it's, it's it's just read to that you know two Why? years. Yeah, just survive. Just, just survive. If you then, sit on the iPad for two hours more than they should, just survive. I would love to do a statistic of how many parents have played the the movie Trolls. I just would love to know how many parents. <laughs> how many parents? So 
Hannah, if you go, uh, re, you know, shift gears, but go back to a few things you said before, which is uh, about performing well and the little things that people can do, because I think a lot of our listeners, especially this time of the year, have some new goals and, and, and ambitions for how they want to see uh, 2022 in terms of their well-being, so fitness, as well as maybe other things. What are some of the stuff that you were hinting at in terms of actual actionable things that people can do that uh, might help them perform better? Yeah, so getting the elite advantage on life, right? Mm. So if you think of like, if you've ever made a um, a tower with a child, so Ben, you might be all over this, you make a tower with your, with your kids and you put the blocks. If your blocks at the bottom aren't stable and sturdy, what happens to the tower? It, it falls over, you right? You have to hold it for your child. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, good job, little Billy. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> it falls over. If you have a poor foundation, everything else will fall over. So, you know, think of this, think of you as this pyramid, this, this cognitive physical pyramid where there's a base at the bottom and the very top of the pyramid is your best self. You're the best Ben, the best Bill, the smartest, the wittiest, the quickest, <laughs> the fittest, the most well-rested, the most attractive. Everything that you want to be is at this top, the best version that you can possibly be. You on a spectrum and you're the the 99th percentile version of you. So sometimes some people try to get into this pyramid at um, a higher level rather than working on what is at the foundation, the very, very foundation. Ah. This is, this is so like, I just want to like clap like I'm in opera because uh, I am dealing with this right now, which is that that I am uh, off the back of a back injury. I have, you know, uh, I'm trying to get back into uh, fitness and stuff, but I put on way, more weight and I'm running slower. And there's so much frustration because I know what I was running at this time last year and I'm not there right now. And I'm frustrated by that. Say if my peak performance is 10, I'm frustrated that I'm at zero and, and how far 10 is, but instead of focusing, how do I get from zero to one? And that's something that I'm genuinely like, I'm aware intellectually about it, but, but then deep down, I'm just so angry that the pyramid seems so high up, you know, and I'm just seems wanting so to get back away. there. Yeah. But you know, like they say, how do you eat an elephant? Well, you start one bite at a time and mm. you need to start at step one before yeah. you try to skip to step seven, because then you will have a crappy base to your little pyramid mm. um, of, of you being your best self. You're never going to reach the highest level if the foundation sucks. So, yeah. you know, and this might be like, dumb stuff like people who put you know eye bag cream under their eyes or go on a diet or go to the gym or you know do brain training games or whatever it is because they want to be the smartest quickest fastest more effective an efficient version of themselves and it's funny because then I'll say some really really basic basic stuff and they're not doing those things like for example are you getting eight hours of sleep every night did you know that some of the reasons why we get dementia is because there are neurofibrillary plaques and tangles in your brain, plaques and tangles in your brain. And when you sleep, that is when your brain cleans out those plaques and tangles. Okay. Mm. So at the beginning of sleep, in the middle of sleep, and in the morning, in the early hours of sleep, different parts of your brain are cleaned. So if you're, you know, getting by on three hours of sleep a night, uh. Well, already Ben's look of Ben's really worried. <laughs> you're you're already you're already shortchanging yourself, and that's again bottom foundation stuff. 
Um, another one is, you know, just what on you... sleep itself. Sorry. Do you have anything yeah. that you, you found has been generally speaking, most effective for most people in terms Valium? of like, <laughs> no, but I mean, like, obviously not having caffeine at midnight before you go to bed is like, obviously one end of the spectrum or whatever, but is there anything other basic? I'll give you a hot tip. Just Google CCI, um, clinical, clinical college or CII. I'll, I'll check that for you, but mm -hmm. it's sleep hygiene. There are so okay. sleep hygiene. There are so many tips on sleep hygiene, heaps and heaps of tips. We could do a whole episode yeah. on good sleep hygiene. Okay. The, the aim of the game is try to get eight hours of sleep. So you need to go to bed at a reasonable time and you need to get up, um, you know, at a reasonable time. Which, or in the which is hard for our work, Dil. Like uh, I've danced around that, but I now, like my main is, 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 is seven and a half, eight's a bonus. That's but good. But 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 for me the the big one is always people know this is I haven't had my phone uh, in the bedroom for like over a year now and that just made all the difference. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know that's practicing good sleep hygiene. We've got good sleep hygiene. We've got good sleep hand sleep hygiene. Hand yeah. hand <laughs> we've got good hand hygiene. I've never done that in my. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that does put me to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, you heard it here from a doctor. Other things really quickly I'll go through the, you know, what are you putting in your gob and what are you doing with your bod is the other things. And the right. and the golden rule is like, you know, that it, essentially your brain is full of these amazing neurotransmitters that make you feel good. And they're things like serotonin, um, dopamine norepinephrine there's all these different neurotransmitters that make you feel good but most people don't think about how they're actually made how they're made the building blocks of these neurotransmitters and a lot of people think they're made in your brain which is not true 90 percent of your serotonin is actually made in your gut in your tummy so, i've heard this recently from yeah. the gut doctor well, I've been following yeah if, if so. you aren't eating a wide and varied diet from mm. plants legumes seeds non-meat stuff you need a wide and varied diet to get all the bacteria off of all those different plants so you have a good gut microbiome and also that you fuel yourself enough to make the building blocks of neurotransmitters called that's called brain derived neurotropic factor just fyi and that's what makes neurotransmitters but eating is one thing. Then you've got to move your body to create that brain-derived neurotropic factor, which then makes the serotonin, which then goes into your brain so that you can release that serotonin to feel, feel better. And people will try to do shortcuts. Again, we talk about shortcuts like antidepressant medication, anti-anxiety medication, which just opens the gate up to release the serotonin into your brain. But if there's no serotonin already there to be released, the stuff is not uh, going to work for you. So right. it's a 30-30 rule. 30 minutes of moving your body a day and 30, 30 different types of plants a day, uh, a week. Is yeah, healthy. right. 30 so different types of plants. A week. Which, or 30 servings of plants. No, no, different no, types, no. different types. Different types because it's oh about getting different bacteria off different plants. So you just need know. a wide and varied diet of different well, plants. Curtis, I can't stick to my $10. I'm feeding a family under $10 a day with Curtis Hansen no, but if I'm getting 30 different plants, mate. What kind of budget do you think I'm well, on? Well, <laughs> no, 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 no. broccoli, seeds. Yeah. So you can count literally anything that's not meat. Okay, okay. And you can make it a game. So we've done that with our family where we both have uh, four columns on uh, on the fridge and then it's at the end of the day we go, well, who's eating the most variety? And then the first one who gets to 30 
wins, and ah. then by the end of the week, whoever has the most is uh, is the um, the champion. And we've done it a couple of times, and of course, I usually come last. But my son, though, who's a bit of a cook and he's really into it, he gets really excited when he finds out that he's eaten five different things and that we've eaten four. But it's it's a real because then you get to t- learn about that stuff and then teach them. Um, you know, that's how. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's 30, it's 30 minutes of movement, 30 types of uh, different types of plants a week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 30 different types of plants. Anything that's not meat counts as mm. part of your 30. Um, and I think that, you know, the biggest, the biggest, biggest, biggest one is stop turning on your fight and flight response all the friggin' time, okay? <laughs> and what I mean by that is in your brain, you have uh, something called the sympathetic nervous system or the not so sympathetic nervous system, which is this system that turns on like an alarm bell that shoots out cortisone, adrenaline, tightens your muscles up, suppresses your digestion, suppresses your sleep because it prepares your body to go into some kind of battle. And we, get, we call it fight and flight, there's fight. So you fight your way out of it. You scream, you punch, you get angry flight. So you flee, you get away, you recluse, you withdraw, you isolate. There's also freeze, which is when you, you might pass out. You might be the person who doesn't defend themselves and you just say nothing and you just go blank. And there's also fawn, which is when people um, like try to ingratiate themselves to the perpetrator, the bully. So they try to befriend the bully. So the bully stops bullying them and they end up oh, putting them in harm's That's the first time I've ever heard the fourth one. I, I knew yeah. about freeze as well. So what was that word again? I think I missed it. Fawn. So F-A-W-N? If, yeah, people who need more right. therapy than all of the so others. <laughs> that's, but Ben, that's what we fucking do with hecklers. We don't go after them straight away. We try and be their friend first and then, yeah. and then take them down. Yeah, because yeah, you're de We also don't want to fuck up the night. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're de-escalating it. Right? So, you know, the reason I named this one is because, you know, you've got this little nerve in your brain and it's called the polyvagal theory because it relates to the, vag- the vagal nerve. So Might be a little for you, mate. It's pretty big and for me, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you've got a big one, Dill. <laughs> that's why he has good hands. for yourself, guys. Holy moly, this is the... <laughs> Oh god. <laughs> anyway. I know it's gonna be a real wave of wave of uh sincerity and absolute yeah. dickheadery. Oh <laughs> but yeah, god. go on, sorry. And I fit right in with that, so that's great. <laughs> um yes, so when we constantly expose ourselves, you you've basically got this vagus nerve. You can remember it like the you know, Viva Las Vegas nerve. Mm. Okay, then you've got a vagus nerve. V-A-G-U-S, yeah, that one. Yes, very good. Yeah. So it it turns on and off based on your exposure to friends or foes. And people often think fight and flight means, oh, a fire, a tiger, a burglar. It doesn't just mean a physical threat. It actually also um, corresponds to emotional threats as well. Because in your brain, if you just looked like, you know, just up above your eyes and kind of forward a little bit, just like right where your two fingers might meet, just above your eyebrows. Before your yeah, receding hairline. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit further forward for you there. <laughs> you, really feeling it right there, right there. Forehead, where they would meet inside your brain, you have this thing called the anterior cingulate gyrus, and that's what lights up when you feel physical pain but it also lights up when you feel emotional pain so that tells us your brain cannot tell the difference between a physical thing like being whacked in the face 
or an emotional thing, like having your heart broken, being socially excluded, being treated, being yelled and screamed at, being treated poorly. Um, so, so people tend to think emotional pain doesn't count, but it actually absolutely counts and it can turn on and off your vagus nerve. And what happens is your vagus nerve is like a muscle that loses its muscle tone when it's constantly firing around people who are supposed to be your friend or your family and they're acting more like they're you know a frenemy or a foe or just mm. a all-round jerk and they're treating you badly and then you end up in this chronic state of adrenal fatigue because your body is constantly on this fight or flight alert response and we start to see that physiological evidence of burnout when you know you wake up first thing in the morning and your your eyes go bing and you think about all the things that you've got to do today and then you you want to stay in bed and sleep but you just can't because you're stressing out so much that's actually called a cortisone awakening response and it happens to people who are burnt out and it's where your your body realizes oh my gosh i accidentally fell asleep and let my guard down better flood this person with the heaps of stress hormones to prepare them for my very stressful day mm. so the question becomes who are you constantly exposing yourself to that might be a source of um, some kind of stress that keeps turning on your fight and fight system where you feel sick in the tummy? Maybe you have irritable bowel syndrome. Maybe you have a lot of food intolerances and you can only eat, you can't eat certain foods because your belly gets really upset. Maybe you can't go to sleep, stay asleep, you wake up really early in the morning. Maybe you've got constant neck and muscle and clenched jaws, sore body all of the time or maybe you just have that general feeling of like shakiness like oh you know in the lead up to the interaction or during the interaction you just are on edge because you're bracing yourself for when that person's going to flip you know from Jekyll to Hyde like they, they're suddenly going to be the jerk that you know that they're going to be and maybe that's a partner maybe that's a friend maybe that's a workplace um, but, family though like you know what I mean like definitely. which is harder I suppose in terms of that breakup concept you know what I mean like if it's a family member um, I guess then so the first I mean uh, being mindful of time as well but the, the first question is what are some of the signs then that you, you, is it actually the physical manifestation of those things that you were just describing that you've met maybe this person isn't the friend that I you know need them to be is it is it then from there do you go on to saying you know, communicating your boundaries and then um, trying to see well, if they wait. respond to it. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yes. So essentially we, the three of us could be here all day talking about all the different signs and signals that your body's telling you that something's not right. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, if you go with the feeling and you know, this feeling guys, you know, it, it's when you're, it's when your shoulders creep up to your ears. It's when you feel yourself climbing up. It's when you feel that nervousness in your gut, when you're like, I'm bracing myself that something's going to happen. I anticipate something bad is going to happen. And before, during or after leaving the interaction feeling worse than before you went into the interaction is a pretty great signpost that that person you're spending time with is making you feel like crap and that's not mm. a good thing so so you know go with the feel is kind of my advice generally go with the feel if you feel worse after the interaction well that's a pretty good signpost that something's wrong there and I think the the next part of this and you kind of touched on it by saying the word communication which is everyone's favorite cliche from a psychologist it, it is the case where you do need to learn how to communicate effective boundaries um, and that's hard 
I know it's hard, especially for women, but I know it can be, it can be tough for guys too sometimes because we, we grew up in a society that says, don't you dare ever, ever be a buzzkill. Like, don't be a buzzkill. There's a, there's an international phrase called don't be Karen. You know, you're a Karen. Like, how dare you complain about what's going on? And, and really what that's done is it's told us, you know, don't complain, don't rock the boat, don't be a buzzkill. It's cool to be chilled out and not care about anything. Be cool as a cucumber. And if you complain about anything, it's because you're a pain in the ass. And that's mm. not actually true. That's not actually true. If you say that something was inappropriate or that it wasn't okay, you're not going to detonate some, you know, confrontation bomb that's going to explode all over the walls and the ceiling and the floor and you'll be slipping through the muck of confrontation land. That's that's not actually how assertiveness works. It's not mm. confrontation. It's about saying something with integrity, calmly. Mm. Calmly. Yeah, exactly. Saying something I, with integrity. I think I saw something last week uh, doing the rounds on social media around saying you can be a good and kind person and still tell someone to fuck off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's great general advice. I wouldn't actually tell someone to fuck <laughs> off. But when I say communication, like I, I mean, this is why I made the Assert Yourself app. This is just people actually have to hear an example of this. And I've got a soundbite of my voice actually saying in a calm, stable voice, hey, you know, when you called me an idiot, it made mm. me feel sad. Please don't call me an idiot again. Mm. Boom. Shut up, you idiot. <laughs> hey, 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 Ben. Come on, don't call me an idiot. It, didn't, it and made that's me feel say, That's when you say, I've asked you not yeah. to call me an idiot. And you've just right. done it again. So I'm going to go now. We can talk right. about it later. Good, please go. I've had enough. I'm just seeing this idiot. desperate to pick his children up. (laughs) Can I I, uh, ask about this then? Okay, so ideally you've communicated and the boundaries, they didn't respect it. And then you go, you know what? This person is taking out more for my life than he's putting in my life. And this is the thing I think what I said to you on Instagram as well is like people making these new resolution, no one will ever think of having no toxic friendships in their resolution. They're always thinking of like fitness and and stuff like that. But but this is such an important topic because we have really learned to accept second-class treatment from certain people that we wouldn't accept from a stranger, but we only accept it for them because we've known them for 20 years or whatever it is, right? And it's a pattern that we have created and and gotten comfortable with. But what happens when, say, it is a work colleague that you can't just automatically, like, you know, they're sitting next to you at the desk and there's no way to kind of move around. Or if it's a family member that, you know, they still love or whatever, but there's just this inability to still find that, 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 that boundary being respected. What happens then? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's such a great point. Cause it's like friendship is one thing, but then when you have blood ties with someone or it's your mm. workplace, it makes there's so many added layers of complexity. And I, I will say in the book, we go through this kind of behavioral modification analysis, where we figure out what happens, when does it happen? Who does it happen with? Is it in the presence of witnesses? When does the person do the behavior to you so that you can figure out what the trigger is and then you can control those triggers a little bit better because sometimes the answer isn't you know I can just dump them and leave it sometimes the answer is I need to manage this and the way you manage it is through knowledge and through understanding what is the antecedent what is the trigger all behaviors have an that word uh, antecedent antecedent the trigger what's the what's the first thing that happens is it Everybody leaves the room and it's just me and mother-in-law and then she makes that snide comment or in front of other work colleages. That's my, my girlfriend's mom's listening to this episode. So, yeah, great. 
high back. You said mother-in-law. For example, like, hypothetical. Not, yeah, exactly. Hypothetical scenario. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's knowledge is power, right? And if you know when someone is more likely to, to treat you with a lack of respect or courtesy, then you're better equipped to be able to then pull out what, what is your effective strategy to manage that behaviour. And sometimes it's about also taking the pressure off yourself that you don't have to respond straight away. And so often we freeze. We talked about the freeze response before and we don't call it out when it happens. And then people think, oh, I didn't say anything, so now I can't say anything. And that's not true. You can say, you can call it out later and say to the person, you know, hey, in the work meeting, when you kept interrupting me and cutting me off, it actually made me feel like I couldn't express myself properly in that meeting. For the next meeting, could we work towards not interrupting one another? Or could you work Mm. towards letting me finish my sentences before you jump in? But it's, but it's also having the courage to well, be able ben, to let me first get this out of the way because I don't... <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but, it is, but is that the thing? Like having the, no, no, so I'm many joking. people can't find the courage to be able to have that conversation. Mm. Like just, so That's what I find fascinating. Like I know someone, a friend of a friend, who has just finally, finally, after all these years, dealt with their workplace bullying. But the, the, the amount of psychological effect and damage is done for him, which he, if he, and he says... I wish I did it earlier. I wish I had these conversations earlier, but I didn't. I kept saying, it'll pass, it'll pass, it'll pass. What's the tip of someone who is in that current situation where they're like, they just need to have the conversation? Yeah. Well, I mean, get support, number one. Get some support, especially in the workplace or the family, external to the family, external to the family. You can't get unbiased support from a family member if it's about another family member or from a workplace if it's your boss's boss who you're talking to because there's a sec there's ulterior motives there yeah Yeah. it's hard to be totally honest so speaking to someone externally like a psychologist who can help you work with your assertiveness skills that's a great place to start but secondly you know let's take that we already feel like crap right let's not put the added serve of guilt on our backs that oh I should have done this earlier I need to do Mm. it perfectly I've got to get it right we can actually start with really easy small little things you know you 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 put a kid in front of a piano you don't ask him to play fight flight of the bumblebee on his first lesson at the piano you 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 start with chopsticks and you work up to it right (laughs) you start with something small so you know the question is do you have do you have an ability to feel in your body when something's not right number one do you have that ability to or have you lost have you suppressed that feeling so much because you've had to ignore it for so long that you don't even notice that your tummy's clenched or your fists are clenched or you Mm. feel like crap can you start to relearn how to feel that sensation and maybe it's after an interaction you touch base with yourself you've got red dots all over your house and you touch base with yourself and you go I need to remember to check in with myself. Do I feel sick in the tummy? Are my shoulders up to my ears? How do I feel about that interaction? How did it go? Maybe it's not a verbal conversation that you have because that's way too confronting for you. Maybe you go, you know what, for my mental health, I'm going to write this in a text message or an email, which I'm absolutely an advocate for. You are allowed to own that. You're allowed to say, I'm sorry I put this in a message and not spoken to you about it, my mental health was in a place where I couldn't have this conversation face-to-face with you. And that's okay. You're allowed to do that. So starting with the small things, which might be, you know, just the little pleasant interactions you have with a safe person, 
like your best mate when he occasionally says makes you the butt of the joke and you go you know hey Dill I know you you make great jokes and you probably don't mean it this way but when you make me the butt of the joke it makes me feel really sad can you not make me the butt of the joke in the podcast and Dill goes I'm writing the email right now I'm writing the email right now (laughs) and he goes I didn't know that you felt that way I Mm. definitely won't do that again so this is practicing you know we practice the skills and then we realize oh, wow, the earth didn't end. It wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. And we build up that momentum to then talk to the bigger person about what's going on for us without it being the end of the world. I'm really genuinely proud of uh, Ben and I, my friendship because of of what you just mentioned, because listeners wouldn't know this, but we've had different times where we've had post podcasts or next year, whatever chats and uncomfortable conversations about, you know, certain things that might've been said and stuff like that. And now it's got to that point where we have that trust with each other, that if something is being brought up, it's not because of uh, any kind of reason to kind of put you down. It's more about actually genuinely articulating how something made you feel and how we can do better in the future. And that trust, I think is, is is there a podcast that's never Cut been the released? Fuck up, mate, I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> there is a podcast in the ethos that will never see the light of day. But wow. that no, no, you? there is. We still put it out. People just didn't pick up on it. <laughs> it, it a big chunk out. That's yeah, the true. thing. You know, not every friendship ends. And I talk about this in the book. I know the title. Sorry, guys. I know right. the title. I know the title is like how to break up with friends, but the book is about, you know, the impact of good quality friends on you and taking the pressure off feeling like you need to have oodles of friends and the neuroscience of friendship and how a good friend, one good friend is worth their weight in gold. And Mm. this is not about you having the perfect relationship with someone and expecting that they're never, ever going to put their foot in it. It's not about expecting someone to never put their foot in it. It's about clearly stating where the shit is so that they don't put their foot in it, you know, and people can't avoid putting their foot in it if they don't know where the shit is. So (laughs) your boundaries is really, really healthy and it doesn't make you high maintenance. It doesn't make you weird. And especially for men listening, it doesn't make you emotionally weak. If you have a conversation with your mates about things that, you know, you're uncomfortable about or, or your emotions. And, and that's something I think a lot of male friendships might need to hear sometimes. So it's great that you guys have such a great male friendship and you can talk about these things together. Yeah. I think the pandemic did actually, I felt like by this, by my, understanding it seems like there were a lot more men groups that started on whatsapp messages just to talk about golf or the footy or whatever that started going about checking in with each other and i think slowly maybe this might be one of the good byproducts of the pandemic which is that people have normalized feeling sad especially among men and being able to say hey i'm actually feeling a bit shit hey um Amazing. We can't have to wrap it up. I've just heard my kids oh, yep, looking at the yep. door. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Oh, uh, my God. Uh, Dr. Thank Hannah you so Carl, much. This is, this is incredible. I, I really hope we can do another one in the future. Yeah. Because I we, feel like we, we really barely, really barely unpacked it. We do I Patreon episodes where we, like, narrow in on one topic. So maybe we can just fi- we, figure if out If you became, we'd love that. And purely just for us. <laughs> yeah, this has been... Oh, um, I love you guys. You are my favorite. Anytime, anyplace. Thank Give me you so much. Happy to chat. Um, uh, where, would, where would you want our listeners to try and uh, uh, find you? Um, yeah, look, maybe just Insta me at no bull psych. If you want to check out the Assert Yourself app, that's on, you know, your Apple downloads or your Google Sorry. downloads. And yeah, if you have a shitty friend, maybe it's time to, to get the How to Break Up with Friends book. <laughs> Do it. 
Do I'll, it. Do it. I'll buy the book for them. <laughs> Just say, take a hint. <laughs> um, uh, ben, you and I, we uh, we have live shows coming up. Yes. Your show is called Any Questions? Is it on sale yet? Yes, it's on sale. So grab uh, a ticket, please. Nice one. My one is called Delicious. Uh, it's going to be in Canberra, uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival. Uh, Adelaide, me and Dave Thornton are doing our double up again, the detour. Uh, all the tickets, at uh, all the information at dirukj.com. Uh, but otherwise, uh, patreon.com slash fitbitpod for all the Patreon episodes as well. And thanks for your continued patronage. And hopefully we'll have one with uh, Dr. Hannah as well in the future yes please uh, that was truly incredible uh thank you so much for taking the time to share all of that with you with us and uh we'll hopefully stay safe everyone out there look thank after you. yourselves and thank you patreon listeners thank you as always thank you thank you <laughs> thanks, Anna. Anna. Bye thanks bye. dr goggle bye. oh that was great that was